Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cine Matchups podcast. We are your hosts, Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we are here to bring you another seven verse 10 seed battle from our Movies from Books Bracket Challenge. So today we have for you Brian Song, and that is our seventh seed versus The Firm, which is our 10th seed for this week. So going off the statistics for this movie, we have Brian Song that comes in an 85% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Based on a Gail Sayers memoir autobiography called I Am Third that was from 1970. So in researching this, I had a little panic, even though we saw the movie and knew what it was based on, because I found that the book was by William Bin titled Brian Song in 1983. But that happened after the movie came out. So if you're looking for the book, Based on this film, the book is not called Brian's Song. It is called I Am Third. I had a panic moment because I was like, oh, no, not another movie that we have to disqualify from this bracket. Not that we have, but we talked about Hacksaw Ridge last week and how it's kind of loosely based on a story. But going on, the film was then made in 1971. It was a made for TV movie for ABC. Uh, A lot of weird statistics for this movie. It's actually listed on an entertainment weekly list for number seven on the list for man cry movies. That makes sense. It it does. It's a real like heavy. Because it's about football. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) For sure. Um, But also got some award nominations for that season. Had a Golden Globe nomination for a made-for-TV movie. A ton of primetime Emmy Awards. It won a few, but was nominated pretty much in every category that year. Going into The Firm, The Firm comes in at a 75% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Based on a book by John Grisham, which was published in 1991. It was then adapted into film in 1993. It's actually the second John Grisham film that came out in 1993, with the other one being one we actually watched in our last bracket challenge, which is The Pelican Brief. But The Firm is the highest grossing Grisham film of all time. It's the longest running time of any John Grisham film. So it was a pretty big success for him. Uh, Nominated for two Oscars, first for Best Original Score, second for Best Supporting Actress for Holly Hunter, who didn't win that category, but did win an Oscar that year for Lead Actress for The Piano. So it was nominated for this movie, didn't take it home, but took home an Oscar that year either way. Her runtime in the movie is five minutes and 59 seconds. So one of the shortest appearances by a nominated actress, actor in Oscars history. But nevertheless, a really great performance for her. So yeah, so that's The Firm. We are going to talk about both of these movies. We're going to talk some silly themes. We're going to talk some real themes. We're going to go into strengths, weaknesses, our details, and go through it until we get one winner that moves on to the next round. So going into themes, this is another one of those films I think we talked about in a previous podcast where we didn't see any themes develop organically or automatically. So we had a lot of silly themes we were thinking of until Sean landed on an actual theme. Um, So I guess we'll go through some of those silly themes. So my first silly theme and my only silly theme, sorry, it is bad knees between Gail Sayers and Dean Norris as henchman number two (laughs) getting shot in the knee by 
Gary Busey, <laughs> unnamed bad guy next to Tobin Bell, a.k.a. Jigsaw. Yeah. So that's my only one. Probably pretty tough. A lot of limping in these movies after the <laughs> knee injuries. But that's what I got. Speaking of knee injuries, one of my bad themes is that both involve actors barely playing sports. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So you look at Brian's song and Brian's song is about the Chicago Bears and about them training, going into games where they're lining up on the roster. But you never actually see them playing sports. You see clips from the real Gail Sayers and the real Brian Piccolo, which is actual footage from the Bears games. But you don't ever see the actors actually playing sports. You see them running and doing drills, but you don't see them tossing a football, throwing a football, anything like that. And then in The Firm, it starts out, for whatever reason, with Tom Cruise playing basketball. And automatically, we were watching that, and Sean just started laughing because he was like, this is hilarious to think of this four foot ten guy just shooting hoops at Harvard or wherever he was. But they also only shot him from the waist up, I think. I could be wrong, but I don't think you ever actually saw him playing basketball. Nobody did flips. He did. He was doing some athletic, weird Tom Cruise stuff. He does all of his own stunts. <laughs> um, going into my next oddball theme, I had actors running as fast as they possibly can. So in Brian's song, we talked about they do these sprints all the time. So most of their activity is just them running and racing. And then in the firm... Pretty much what feels like the entire second half of the movie is Tom Cruise just running as fast as he can around the city of Memphis. Doing his own stunts. <laughs> Doing his own stunts, but just flying through the city of Memphis. And it feels like it goes on for seven hours. And then my last one is, I guess, a little bit more out there, but it's that they both mentioned pizza. So in The Firm, you have Tom Cruise's character, Mitch, who's talking to his wife, Abby, and they're talking about going back to simpler times before they joined the firm. And they mentioned, hey, what if we just do what we did when we lived in our little shitty apartment in New York and we found five bucks in our pocket and we got excited and we ordered pizza and ate it on the floor. So that was the little mention there. And then in Brian's song, it's known that Brian Piccolo's favorite food was pizza and they're eating pizza quite a bit in the movie. And he's always bringing pizza to Real the Real diet of professional athletes. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it worked for him. Why not? Men and their metabolisms. But then you see him getting pizza as he's in the hospital and he's dying. And it's him and a few of the teammates and his wife and Gail's wife. And they're all eating pizza. And then the nurse comes in and is like, oh, you guys got to get out of here. It's time to go. And she takes like the whole fucking pizza with her. <laughs> the entire pizza. They eat three pieces out of that pizza box. I'm like, why are people just letting her take that? Be like, hey, listen, no, I'll pack that. I'm going to take it home. So I want to talk about something with that scene if okay. I can. Yeah. Because while we do research for these movies, for me specifically, sometimes I can get in these rabbit holes. The one rabbit hole that I got in for this movie was in this scene and it's with the pizza that he's drinking after having surgery, which is very odd because I don't know if they allow you to drink beers after surgeries, but he's drinking Brown Derby beer and Brown Derby no longer exists, but at a beer can collector's auction in 2009, a six pack sold for $200. You really spiraled into some like deep, dark, antique roadshow shit. Yeah, well, 
secretly I wanted to see if I could still find it existing and get it before we did this podcast so we could drink them during the podcast. Oh, that would be very meta of us. Yeah. And then we would get just completely hammered by the end of this podcast. Mm -hmm. But no luck. Well, darn. But (laughs) we have to continue on either way. I mean, if you want to get up and crack open a Stella in the fridge. I am okay. Go ahead. By the way, this podcast is not sponsored by Stella Artois, (laughs) but if they would love to sponsor us, we would love to have them. Please hit us up at any time. Uh, (laughs) Going into our actual themes for this movie, I think you had found some. It just took me forever to even think of ones. And then when I thought of them, I was like, nah, this is kind of a stretch. But let's see what you got. So all of my, I have three of them and all of them are stretches and more of just similarities than actual themes. The first one is teamwork. One of them is about an entire football team. So that one's clear there. And then in the firm, it's this ragtag team that gets put together where Mitch is the leader, Tom Cruise's character, Mitch. He's the leader and telling these people what to do and moving all these pieces around. And this entire team is helping him. So that's kind of where my teamwork theme fits in. Well, going off of that, then, since we don't have a whole ton of context for these themes, let's go into battle with these and let's think of which one did it better. Like what movie showcased the power of teamwork better? Brian's song. Clearly, right? I would think so. But you think of The Firm and with The Firm, you start out with Tom Cruise's character, Mitch, who gets an offer from a law firm, a very prestigious law firm in Memphis. And they offer him a ton of money. They buy him a house. They buy him a car. They pay off his student loans. It's a remarkable offer. And then you find out some weird shit's going on. And some of the lawyers who tried to leave the firm have died. And there's some weird like culty stuff with the wives and trying to have children. And then it evolves into investigating this firm. And he pulls in Gary Busey's character. He pulls in Holly Hunter's character. And so he pulls in a lot of outside people. And so I think the teamwork aspect of this movie is interesting and maybe a little bit unfair when you compare it to Brian's song because you slowly have a team building throughout the firm because you're trying to figure out who's on his side and who's not. But in Brian's song, it's very clear that this movie is about these two guys as a member of not only the Bears team, but as like a team duo together. The reason that I'll give it to Brian's song is because the teammates help each other out through their sicknesses slash injuries, where the firm is them teaming to beat the firm and the FBI. You know what I mean? It's not two teammates that are helping each other. Everyone's helping Tom Cruise. True. True. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm not arguing. I think Brian Song definitely showcases teamwork better and a better story of teamwork. You want to give both of these guys a hug and they both are so great as characters and as men. And then in the firm, you have people who aren't as fantastic or compelling. Um, Like even Tom Cruise's character, he's obviously the protagonist of this whole movie, but you don't want to be a part of his team sometimes because it's kind of confusing what he's doing. Not saying you want to be a part of the firm's team, but thing about this movie is Tom Cruise's goal. They try and keep hidden from you for the entire movie. They really try and keep you from knowing, even though a couple times towards the end, it should be the reveal of his plan and it's not. And it just holds and holds and holds until the very end. 
And that's why, too, when we talked about our silly themes and my theme of Tom Cruise literally running around the city for the second half, that is one of my biggest problems with this movie. And maybe I'm peering a little bit into my weakness. But since we're on the topic, it is very true that people didn't like the screenplay for the second half of the movie because of that reason. You never know what exactly Mitch is trying to do. You don't know how all these people are involved or even if they're a part of this team and they are involved, if they're actually helping or if there's people who are like inside men trying to thwart his efforts to do whatever he's trying to do. It's all very messy and a little confusing. So whereas Brian songs, this team element and this guy standing by his teammate and both of them being there to support each other definitely takes out the win for that because it is a very strong teamwork movie. I'm going to go into the second one, which is the piano and the score. Okay. Both scores are just insanely piano based. Mm-hmm. And while Tom Cruise is running through Memphis, it's literally someone playing that thing. Yeah. On the piano. That's literally <laughs> what it sounds like as he's running through Memphis. In Brian's song, the piano is everywhere. They put it in with the NFL highlights. They put it in with the actual movie part. It's littered throughout the entire movie. That's my second similar theme. Okay. And we'll talk about who did it better. And I think there's a clear winner in this one in my eyes, not just because one of them was nominated for an Oscar, but also doing research and thinking back on it because you had mentioned the score and it was one of those movies I didn't pay too heavily attention to it in the firm because I was so interested in trying to figure out the intricacies of what everyone was doing and what was going on. But reading into it, it is just a guy who sat at a piano and did the score and did the score throughout the entire movie. Yeah, it's and think, riddled with piano. Right. And thinking back to it, watching it, I don't remember there being a lot of lulls in background music or in the score anywhere. It seemed like it was pretty persistent throughout. And Brian's song to me, I think was not something I remember the score for, but I do remember now that you're mentioning the highlights when they played the music over it, which was really cool and fun to do just for a continuity sake, going from the flash forwards to what was happening with the actors. Yeah, that was my second similar theme. The piano was just very heavy in both of these. And like you said, used very well in both of these and added a lot to the movies. And I think the winner of the better piano score is The Firm. I would agree with you. And again, not just because it was nominated, but just thinking back to it, that's the one I guess I would remember more. And that research-wise seemed more impressive. So my third one is that both of these movies started out feeling like a completely different movie. Brian's song starts out feeling almost like a slapstick comedy because Brian tells Gail when they meet in George Hallis's office that he doesn't hear so good on his left ear. So you have to stand on his right. And it's a pretty silly scene of him running around trying to get to the right side of George Hallis. And then pretty much right after that is the mashed potatoes in the chair scene. Which, again, is like pure slapstick comedy. Not very good. But when I saw it, I thought to myself, is this a slapstick comedy that's going to like take a turn at the end? 
I didn't think that. I thought that they were trying to add elements of this like bro, buddy, fun, goofy, welcome to the team, hazing type of atmosphere. Sure. But the stand on his right scene was a little goofy and slapsticky. It was. But again, I just thought of it as a hazing because they did even mention hazing. Those two guys came up to them with. I don't even know. They had cans of something and they were like, coach says we're not supposed to haze the new guys, but here you are. We're going to pour beans on you. I I I can't remember what it was. It was something really weird. So I just chalked it up to that. But the firm also starts off feeling like it should be a horror movie. And this movie is actually labeled as a crime drama thriller and not trying purposely to skip around because I am type A and love my orderly format, but that is one thing I had for a little detail and it's not even a, a little detail that did make a big difference, but a little detail that if we took it and spun it, where would it go? Because you're right. This movie does start out as something that is more thriller horror mystery because when he accepts the offer, moves to Memphis, joins the firm, there is all these oddities that come up right away. Like the firm bought them a house and furnished it and sent them this fruit basket. And then they go to this party where it's all of the members of the firm. There's 41 of them and their wives. And it's this weird thing where you find out that none of the members of the firm have ever been divorced. They've stayed at the firm throughout the entire lives. They haven't gone and sought out other jobs. And then one of the women speaks to Abby, Tom Cruise's wife, and is talking to her about children are encouraged and you don't have to take a job and it's all very culty weird. And so from there forward, I wonder how it would look spun as a horror movie. I was going to say, you don't even have to go through all of those examples that you gave in order to find this movie creepy. You just have to acknowledge that they use the title The Firm as almost a living entity. And that's creepy. And they use it throughout the movie. They never reference it as, I don't even know the name of the three guys who are on it. It's in the movie a couple of times, but they refer to it as The Firm all the time. And even when the guy comes for the phone company and is installing the phone in Mitch and Abby's new house, he says, we do all of the installations for the firm. Like they are this weird culty group that everyone in town knows. All of the other law firms know, the FBI knows and has been tracking. It's all very strange. And it would be so interesting to me to track this movie as a horror film that continued on with that because you come to find throughout the movie that they've bugged the house, they've bugged the phones, they know everything that Mitch and Abby are doing, what they're saying, if they sense any flight risk type behavior from Mitch, that they might have to get rid of him, kill him, do whatever to try and keep him at the firm. But It is very horror-esque spooky, but they spin it into more of a crime drama type of genre, I would say. And as I was watching it and thinking, man, if like Jordan Peele got his hands on this, what would it look like? If Give Jordan Peele this John Grisham book, because it also does have a lot of like weird spooky elements, like why are all the guys at the firm men like all a bunch of white men and the one lady who joined the firm is dead now mysteriously. 
So I think give this to Jordan Peele and he can make a really fun spin on this and all of its also racist undertones. I don't know. I liked it as it was. A horror might have been a little odd. If you if you I did guess it right, to- if you gave it to the right person and they did it right, I think it would be cool. But I'm not complaining about this movie. I like this movie and I liked what they did with it. I was intrigued by it the entire time, but I just felt like they gave a lot of these weird culty aspects, especially with the wives in the film, because even the wives talking to each other were really, really interesting. Isn't that Stepford Wives? A little bit. Okay. And that's why I was thinking they probably scaled it back or maybe John Grisham st- scaled it back. I don't know timeline wise when Stepford Wives came along, but maybe to not make it as similar as that. But still, I love myself a good like horror, psychological thriller, like weird culty movie. And I just think if you gave it to the right person, it could take an interesting spin. Do you think in this horror version of this movie that Tom Cruise is actually in on it at the end? And Absolutely. It's because he's creepy. Tom Cruise is cool. No, he's not. This has come up in so many podcasts already. We talked about it in American Psycho. American Psycho. We did our very first one. And now here we are again, back to Tom Cruise being not charming or cool. Tom Cruise is cool. He does all of his own stunts. That's cool. Agree to disagree. And he acted his height in this movie. (laughs) He did. He did. Uh, Moving on. Let's go into some of our strengths and weaknesses for this movie. Unless you had other themes. I think we wrapped up with themes. That was it. Cool. All those themes were kind of loose. But going into strengths and weaknesses, I guess we can talk about weaknesses first when it comes to Brian's song, because we mentioned the score and mentioned the sound already. I want to tack on my weakness to the film. And it was some of the overtures that they decide to do during dramatic scenes in the movie. So there is a scene of Gail falling, hurting his knee, There's another scene, I think, of Brian in the hospital when he finds out he has to have another surgery because he has cancer and they found like more. And they zoom in on their faces. Yeah. Yeah. They Like it's a a telenovela. Telenovela. Yes. They do that. But it also has this weird sound effect to it where it's like (laughs) like very loud out of nowhere it sounds like someone's like sneaking and stealing candy from a candy store that's what the music supports not that this man just found out that his body is like riddled with cancer or this man just almost broke his knee and his career might be over for the rest of his life it doesn't fit what's going on at all it is so weird but it's also so made for tv cliche cliche music, sitcom cliche. It's all very cliched for TV, but that doesn't make it good because it took very serious moments and made them so, so strange. I also noticed it. So my weaknesses were that it was too short and I wanted more content. The runtime is an hour and 10 minutes. It's like an hour and 15 minutes or something like that. It is not a long movie at all. And I feel like if you made this movie two hours, you could get some really great content in there. But it feels so rushed because I know it's an hour and a half TV special that also had to have 20 minutes worth of commercials in there. And Oral B had to get their commercials into this movie. You know what I mean? Like this podcast podcast is also not sponsored by Oral-B. No, (laughs) but like you said, I know what you're saying. It's a TV movie. You can tell. And 
if this was an actual theater released movie that was two hours, you could get a lot more content in here, a lot more on the characters, a lot more on the stories, background characters. We really only have Brian and Gail through the entire movie. But do you need more is the question, because here's my take on this and your weakness is actually a part of my strength. And to me, the biggest strength of this movie was that it was an hour and 15 minutes long and still established such a good teamwork friendship bond between these two that at the end it had me choking up and a bunch of men cried to this movie, according to Entertainment Weekly. But it established such a good connection and it established a storyline. You got what was going on in an hour and 15 minutes. And that's a cool feat for a movie to accomplish. But I hear you. I think some parts felt really rushed and a little bit unexplained. And they used a lot of the footage to show a lapse in time. So they showed Brian and Gail actually playing in Bears games. And I think that showed the passing of time. And that was a good effort by them to eloquently display that. But I do wonder if you had more of the backstory between them, even if you had a post Brian passing away what did Gail do with the rest of his career kind of moment? I think that would have been fun to see too. Well, not even that. Both of these men's wives get introduced to each other and then they're just hanging around at some points, but never really established into characters. What do those characters look like? It's got to be hard for a wife to have a husband in the NFL who tears his knee in the 70s when they can't reconstruct knees like they can today. You know, that's her livelihood. What does she think of this? What do they talk about? Brian's wife, he has cancer. What does she think of this? This is her husband that is going to die. What kind of conversations are they having? And I wish I had more of that. It's interesting. I I don't know how it would play out because, again, I really liked it being centered on these two characters. It also made it an easier watch, too, that you didn't have to know anybody else's storylines pretty much except for Brian and Gail's throughout the entire movie. That's what it was about. It was about them. You had the coach, you had the wives who played a little bit of a part, some of the team members who played a little bit of a part, but you didn't really need to know anything about them because it wasn't about them. It was about Brian's life. It was about how Gail and he formed this friendship that was even tested by media. It was such a good tale of two friends overcoming stigmas put forth in the media, overcoming stigmas set forth by the team about a rookie. And I don't know how much more it would add to the integrity of the film and the integrity of those two characters and their team by adding in all of these extra player storylines. I, I get that. We can see both sides of it. I but want a little more. I, and I don't think that's wrong. Well, I think there was a 2001 version of this. So maybe if you want to catch that and see if it provides some fillers for you. Maybe. But this actually goes right into my strengths. One of them is that I like the actual NFL footage that they used. They got the express written consent of the NFL. (laughs) And the other one is I like this story that it was very straightforward. And I know it sounds like I'm almost contradicting my weaknesses because I wanted more, but I wanted more with the story still as straightforward as it is. It is this guy tore his knee. This guy helped him. Then this guy had cancer and the guy that tore his knee helped him. And it was a beautiful friendship. I just wanted more. 
but I like the fact that it was straightforward. They tell you right before it even starts what the story is. You know, there's that narrator who gives that whole spiel about it's about friendship and unlikely friends and this whole They spiel. lay it out for you. Yeah. Before the movie even really gets going. And I've found that as we, because uh, we've watched a lot of movies throughout our lifetime. And I would say in the past four years, we've watched a lot more than we had before. And I've come to appreciate just a movie that is told in a linear fashion with a straightforward storyline that isn't convoluted, isn't confusing, is just nice to watch. It's refreshing to just watch something that is told in chronological order that isn't confuzzled with a lot of stupid details. And that's what Brian's song gave us. You get to watch it. You just get to watch it and you don't have to think about it. And don't get me wrong. Some of these movies where you have to think about it and figure out what's happening and there's mystery about it. Totally fun to be a part of. But even thinking of some of those movies that have those thinking pieces, throw it in that they're also told out of chronological order or from different perspectives. And sometimes it just makes a headache of a movie. So I loved that they were able to tell such a good story of friendship in a short amount of time in a chronological linear storyline, pulling in real footage. Like you said, I thought it was really cool. Going over to the firm, what are your weaknesses here? I talked about it already, but it felt that the second half was so stretched out and very confusing because the different aspects of this movie is that you have Tom Cruise, Mitch, who's working for the firm. And then a lot of these weird things are coming up and he's Googling some stuff back in 1993. So it was this, you know, weird pre Google search engine. But he's looking into stuff. He's researching things. He's going to the Cayman Islands with Avery, another member of the firm who's his mentor. And there's this weird closet with these boxes and files from these people from the firm that have died. And so he's trying to investigate it himself. And then the FBI gets involved and is like, hey, we know that they're doing some shady shit. We're going to put you in witness protection because they're going to kill you if you leave the firm or if you don't stick with them. They're lawyers for the mob, blah, 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 all this stuff. So then you have that angle. And then you have Tom Cruise going and saying to the firm members, hey, the FBI approached me and they're on my tail. And then you have Tom Cruise trying to take down the firm, but trying to get money from the FBI so he can break his brother out of prison. And it's all it all becomes very okay. Who's he working with towards the last half of the movie? I don't know who's on his team. I don't know who's not on his team. I don't know what his intentions are. I don't know what he wants to do. It all seems very unclear. And then at the end, they're driving off in a car on their way back home to Boston And you're like, oh, because he got his life back. (laughs) It's like, oh, okay, I guess he accomplished what he wanted to. And that's it. It's a a happy ending for everybody. It's just a weird pathway to get there, because I think this would read better as a book if you had pages and pages of this is what his thought process is. And this is what he's thinking of doing. I think it would read really well, but they did not translate that onto written for film. I agree with that weakness 100%. That was one of my weaknesses. And the second weakness is that the overbilling at the end is what ties all this together. Otherwise, I have no idea what he was even planning on doing. Yeah. So at the end of the movie, they ended up getting the firm in trouble because they find out the firm was 
throwing billable hours for their clients higher. So for example, Mitch's character would spend 22 hours working on someone's case and then they would bill the person 33 hours. So that's how they busted them is Tom Cruise called all of these people and were like, hey, I'm from the firm. We overbilled you. Will you sign a release to send over your invoice to us? And then he gave all of that to the feds. So it, it all was really weird because it all it's hinges like, on this. Yeah. And it's like, what about all the other shady shit they were doing? They've been doing crazy shit and probably murdering people and blowing them up on boats in the Cayman. Like there's all this other shit that doesn't really get unpacked. Yeah. And I know they talk about it at the end between uh, Agent Terrence and Mitch because Agent Terrence does say, well, what about the mob? And he says, well, I gave you all this over billing charges that are 10 years each and you're going to get all these people for multiple years. But I just wanted it a little more sexy almost. It's like <laughs> what? not sexy, but big. You wanted Tom Cruise to have like a finessed moment of here's what I gave you. See you later. Yeah, I wanted it to be a little more sexy instead of like getting them on mail fraud. You know what I mean? Like mail fraud isn't sexy. Taking these guys down with murder is sexy. They murdered these people and he just doesn't get them on that. He's like, here's some wire fraud. What does it end up being? It's just overbilling that they talk about, but I don't know what the exact charge ends up being. But either way, it's not a sexy charge. I'm sorry that both you and the Department of Justice were disappointed at the ending of this film. It's okay. Me and Ed Harris will get our day. (laughs) Yeah, that was my thought, too, about it was that it wasn't a super satisfying ending because it was so confusing. So I see what you're saying with that. But transitioning into strengths about that wondering piece and that mystery piece of the movie, I liked that I was always wondering who was in on it and who wasn't. So for the firm, Because they were everywhere and it was set up that we're in your house, we're tapping your phone lines. You wondered who was part of the firm or who they were paying to spy on Mitch. Because at one point, Mitch goes to Eddie Lomax, who's a private investigator played by Gary Busey, which is hilarious. And he plays him perfectly, even though he's also in the movie for, I think, three minutes. But he goes over to Eddie Lomax's character after he finds out that his brother Ray was his cellmate in prison. And you wonder because Eddie Lomax is kind of like a car salesman scummy guy. And you wonder if the firm set Mitch up with this guy, too, if they're paying him under the table, if they're paying Holly Hunter's character under the table. And there was one character, too, in this movie that I thought are they in on it? And they, it turned out they were. And it was when Avery and Mitch go to the Caymans for the very first time, Mitch is walking on the beach alone at night and stumbles upon this woman who's in a violent situation with what we find out was her quote unquote boyfriend, so to say. And he helps her tie up their ankle and then they have sex. And you wonder like, was she a plant or was this just like a vulnerable, weird moment for him? And you do find out that they did plant her there at the end. So they had so many ties everywhere. And that was cool to think about was, who is on his side, who is not as much as it was frustrating in the second half of the film, the buildup after they revealed some of the weird stuff that was going on of thinking who was on his side and who was actually working for the firm was really fun. I agree with that 100%. And it's not only thinking about who it was, 
it was the tension that was added to it. Mitch having conversations with all these characters brings a lot of tension into the movie because you don't know who is on his side, is not on his side where people are falling in this almost game that everyone is playing. And it makes every conversation that he has tense because he's talking to these people and you don't know if that's a misstep or not. And like I said, it builds that tension. Even when he's talking, there's another character that I thought was also in on it. And it was the boat captain. Oh, yeah. Who I also at times thought was in on this and getting paid money. And you're sitting there trying to almost cheer him on to be more careful. But there were some moments in the movie where I was like, why are you doing that? You big stupid idiot. Every time they talked about their plan and the firm while they were in their backyard, I was like, would they be stupid enough to not plant bugs in the backyard? Like they couldn't hear him or even when he was on his phone or when they turned up the music really loud and he was whispering in Abby's ear, still all of it sounded really risky. He, he talked a lot about these open plans, like in the public streets, like, dude, you just found out that people are following you everywhere. There's pictures of you on this beach with this woman. Wouldn't you be extra careful Wouldn't you just like go to a secluded box in the woods to have any of your conversations about the FBI? Not Tom Cruise. He's a man and he does things the man way. It's so weird because even people acknowledge. So there's a scene where he goes to meet up with the FBI and they're right by the reflection pool by the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. And he goes and he sits on a bench with this guy who's an FBI agent and tells him all about the things he's been doing and all about his suspicions. And the FBI agent talks to him about here's what you can do for us. And then Ed Harris's character even makes a comment after that, that they could be following you right now. Well, fuck, if they were following you right now, why are you having a conversation about this undercover witness protection shit on a bench in one of the most crowded places in Washington, D.C.? That's a good point. I don't know. (laughs) It made no sense to me. I was like, I would be so careful if I knew that the place I worked for had bugs all over my house, had people following me 24 seven and wanted to potentially kill me if I didn't follow suit. I would be so much more careful than he was. I'm wondering, I'm thinking about it because you said that this could also be a horror movie. Could this also be a version of The Truman Show? No. (laughs) I mean, that's what The Truman Show was. His whole house was bugged and everyone was in on it. Yeah, but that was a little bit more light than what this was. He didn't run the risk of getting murdered in The Truman Show. That's because he was the star. (laughs) The star power cures everything. No, I I hear what you're saying, but also it was set up to be more of a big brother's always watching you, but we could also murder you type of premise. That's fair. You want to go into small details? Let's do it. All right. So my small detail for the firm was just everything that Tobin Bell added to it. Every time he was on screen, you just got a little more nervous. And they did a great job of showing it when the security guard for the firm says that we're going to go take a ride and Tobin Bell is in the car with them. And even when everyone gets out of the car, it keeps going between the conversation between Mitch and the security guard and Tobin Bell's character who's standing off over in the distance, but he is looming over the entire scene. And I think he's just very important to the entire movie because in the very few scenes he's in, he is very intimidating. I didn't like him in this movie. I'm sorry. 
I thought he was kind of a dud. I thought both of them are duds because they also introduced them halfway through the movie and was again set up to be this really spooky thing because he talked to the guy who chartered the boat in the Grand Caymans with the two lawyers who died. And the guy had mentioned to Mitch, oh, there was two other guys, two on there, the guy with the white long hair and blue eyes and was describing Tobin Bell. So then you see Tobin Bell and you're like, oh shit, that's the guy. But then he's just kind of there. He runs around and chases Mitch around, but he's also just there, but also didn't feel intimidating to me. Maybe it's because I haven't seen Saw or any of the Saw movies. I've seen snippets of the first one, but maybe there was that premeditated like this guy's creepy because he's in the Saw movies. I don't know. I didn't find him that creepy or strong of a character. I don't know. I mean, he was the guy. He was the hit guy. So every time he's around, I'm thinking to myself watching the movie, he's going to get shot here. He might get shot at. And that kind of ramped up my nervousness. And to me, he just looked like a dork who was just running around trying to get Mitch. It was the 90s, Kim. Everyone looked like a dork. (laughs) I don't know. I didn't love it. I didn't love the henchman. I get it. Every good mob-like business needs two henchmen who do the dirty work, but they gave them almost too much of a backstory to be these ominous killing machines. You know what I'm saying? Like they gave them too much of a, this is who they are. And then you saw them and he barely spoke. He didn't really do anything. And then they give them kind of that goofy moment of they're in Eddie Lomax's office and trying to talk to him about, hey, who came and talked to you about the firm? Why are you investigating lawyers? And Eddie Lomax says something stupid, says it's someone silly. And then they shoot Eddie Lomax and he he's dead. And Tobin Bell makes a comment to the other guy and is like, how are you going to get him to talk now? And it was like that weird Joe Pesci home alone buddy bad guy scene that made no sense when it comes to like these two being killing machines for like the subtype mob. I'll give it to you. Sure. You don't have to succumb to the things that I say, but that's just my views on it. And I wasn't sold on Tobin Bell in this movie or the henchmen in general. Okay. Well, that was my small detail that I liked. We already talked about my small detail for the firm back when we were talking about it as a horror movie. Um, But going into little details for Brian's song, my little detail for this movie was that there's a series of speeches that Gail Sayers gives throughout the movie. And for the first one, he wins the rookie of the year and Brian writes him a speech and is like, Hey man, just go up. All you gotta do is say this, you know, keep it simple. They're practicing it at the table. Yeah. They're practicing it. He's trying to pump him up and Gail goes up there and just says, thank you. And leaves the stage. Doesn't make eye contact with anybody in the audience looks down and throughout the whole first half of the movie, you see him looking down, not a whole lot of confidence, kind of the new guy on the block mentality. And you don't see a lot of his confidence come up, but then you see it build through his friendship with Brian and you see him looking up towards camera more. You see him looking at people, you see him smiling, you see him laughing and it's this comfortability that's developing and this friendship that's developing that helps them. And then at the end he gets another award. I I can't remember exactly what it was for, 
but he gets an award and I believe it's the man of the year award. You're right. Yes, that's what it is. So he gets the award and he goes up and he gives this beautiful, beautiful speech about himself, about Brian, about their friendship. And throughout the entire speech, he's looking at the audience. He's engaged. He's looking back and forth at the award and back at the audience. And it just shows that this confidence in himself was built on this friendship, but also this friend building him up to be great and acknowledging that he's great and getting Gail to acknowledge that he's great at what he does. And now he has the confidence to talk in front of people and not feel like he has to shut her away from the spotlight. And I thought that was a really cool difference with the speeches throughout the movie. I absolutely love that. I wrote it down. It did not make my small detail. My small detail was actually inside of that. But I did write that down because that is how we know of Gail's growth. That is the only measuring stick throughout the entire movie of the personal growth that Gail Sayers has is he is terrible at speeches and then he is good at speeches and everything between those speeches is what made him good at the speech at the end. Mine is during that speech, he says, we won't remember him for how he died, but how he lived. And I know it's an almost cliched quote at this point in time. But in the 70s on TV for a TV movie, that's some pretty next level stuff that was going on. TV wasn't doing these big thought provoking quotes. And I think it hit really hard for me. Yeah, that's cool. Because it's basically telling the audience not to worry about how people are dying, but to remember their lives. And I think that's very important. And we see that a lot when famous people die now. And this being in the 70s, almost a little ahead of its time. Very nice. Yeah, agreed. So those are our little details. Went over all of these things. We talked about winners in our smaller themes, but now it is time to talk about our winner and our overall bracket challenge matchup of this seven verse 10 seed. So on the count of three, if you are ready, we will reveal our winner. I'm ready. All right. Three, two, one. The The firm. firm. The firm moves on to the next round. And I think maybe some of you are surprised because we kind of shat on the firm a little bit when it came to our weaknesses and the entire second half of the movie. And I don't think we had a whole lot of heavy weaknesses for Brian's song, Um, but both were really great movies. We enjoyed watching both of them. The firm just kept us really engaged. You shit on the firm. I didn't shit on the firm. (laughs) I liked The Firm. It kept us engaged. It was fun. It wasn't too heavy of a movie to watch, which was nice because I feel like we've gotten a lot of really, really heavy movies with some heavy topics to talk about. So it was nice having these two that still had some really serious moments, but were very overall an easy watch to, to watch. So that is only our second upset of this bracket challenge so far. We forgot to mention it when we did it, but the first was with the Green Mile beating Atonement, and that was an eight versus nine seed matchup. So not a whole lot of difference in the consensus scores for those, but this is a 10 seed beating a seven seed. So it's our biggest upset so far of this bracket challenge. Do you know why? Why? It's because Tom Cruise does his own stunts. Oh my gosh. Moving on. (laughs) So if you guys want to see where you are falling in our bracket challenge, if you have 
submitted a bracket through Chalones. You can go there. We live update our scores and you can look at leaderboard and see where you guys are falling in that bracket challenge so far. I think our first, second and third place are really close. Our first place person so far has only gotten one incorrect matchup so far for this whole bracket challenge. We have no perfect brackets, but still some really impressive top scores going on there. So very excited to see who ends up winning that whole thing. So you can go check that out. You can check out our Instagram, our Twitter, and please follow us on there and subscribe and like all of our content. And we will be back with you on Thursday, August 20th. And we will close out this seven versus 10 seed matchup where we will be talking Black Hawk Down, which is our 10th seed versus the Age of Innocence, which is our seventh seed. So for the cinema matchups, we are Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we will see you next time. 